Welcome today to the Learning with Lowell podcast. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. This podcast was created after I this podcast was created after I met the doctors that made the drug that would eventually go on to save my life. Before that point, I was just in and out of the ICU and ER and working multiple jobs at the same time, which and going to school at the same time. It was a very hectic time. All of that kind of led into me not being able to, you know, see a lot of mentorship or get a lot of advice on what I should be doing in life. And so when I left college, I basically just worked 12, 16 hour days doing consulting to pay off my medical and college debt. I know a lot of you out there are, you know, working huge, long days and you don't have the time to, you know, be current with the, the latest news and science or any of these industries will be talking with the experts on or getting advice on how to get into those industries yourself. Each of these episodes, if I'm doing my job right, you're going to get some strategies, some ideas on how to navigate into the careers that they have, you know, how to test yourself to see if they're doing what you want to be doing, see the latest news and interesting things that they're working on, and get a great sense of the new technologies and stuff that exists, all while in a really fun conversational format. Each episode has a variety of topics and subjects discussed, and if you go to my website, or look in the show notes, you'll see each of those. You'll also see on my website hyperlinks to go learn more. Additionally, we're going to have timestamp show notes. So if you can click on those, it'll take you right to those sections, which is amazing. And all those can be found on my website, learnwithlowell.com. Today, we're joined by Sarah O'Connor, not the one from Terminator, but an amazing plant chemist that is working on creating natural products from plants. We get into what her work is actually like, where the future is going, how a 15-year project would probably be done in five years, book recommendations, problems she's having. This is a great episode if you want to learn more about plant synthesis and how folk medicine is being used to create drugs and medicines to keep us all healthy and happy. So the first thing I always like to learn about people is kind of what they do when they're not working. And so I'm curious, does your, do you do any like gardening or anything with plants in your free time since? Oh my goodness. I hate this question. (laughs) Question makes me sound like a very boring person. I don't have any hobbies. It's funny. I got interested. I do, I do have some plants. I really would not call myself an avid gardener or really good at growing plants. Um, I got interested in plants mostly because of the chemistry. I was trained as a chemist. And I realized that plants make lots of really, really interesting molecules that nobody had really um, studied the synthesis of in a, in a lot of detail. And that was really my main motivation for going into plants, basically, that they were understudied. Um, so I've gotten better at growing plants, but I definitely did not come at it from the gardening angle, unfortunately. When I was in college, I was in a neuroscience lab, and the person was using the, one of my advisors was using the scientific method to learn how to cook eggs better i just it's always interesting to see how how people take what they're learning or what they're working on in their daily lives and apply it in other arenas do you do any of that Um, maybe not in gardening i don't know do you use like your chemistry mind for anything in in a daily life well you mentioned cooking i mean the chemistry of cooking is really interesting so yeah i mean i think i do pay i do try to pay attention to the chemistry of things in real life and i mean now that i've been working with plants for a little while you know i'll I don't know, see a flower, a rose blooming, and I'll smell it and I'll think to myself, oh, that's geranium being released from the rose. That's what I'm smelling. So yeah, I I think I do try to think a little bit about the chemistry of real life. So just go about my day. 
this is kind of a, a thing that I, I've been trying to figure out for myself because a lot of my listeners ask this question, which is like, how do you know what you want to do? Because I think uh, there's like a at least like one fourth of people are in college and they're trying to like suss things out. And so how did you know that chemistry was right for you? Did you just have like this underlining passion or did you try a bunch of things? And like, for some reason, the chemistry just kept coming back up. I think with me, I kind of fell into chemistry a little bit. Um, my dad is a chemist. Mm. And so, and he actually, my dad got his PhD while I was in high school. So I kind of watched him go through the process of getting a PhD in organic chemistry. And um, so I, I kind of took an extra interest in chemistry and decided to major in it in college. And um, I think I just went through the courses in college and, and did well in them. And then I started to do undergraduate research in a laboratory and really, and really liked being in a chemistry laboratory. I really liked making things um, and just kind of playing around making different chemicals in, in the laboratory. So I think that was kind of how I got into it. I, I think what I found interesting was that it, it was sort of more about how my interest kind of evolved once I started in chemistry. Sometimes I feel like if I had started in biology, um, that would have been just an interesting foundation. Um, I mean, I think as I kind of got interested in research, the fact that I started in chemistry didn't particularly limit me, you know, as to what questions I, I, I would look at. Do you think that there's, if you were an undergrad again, or, or someone who has always kind of been drawn to chemistry, would you suggest that they get into a lab as a volunteer or something like that? So they can Absolutely. see. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the most important thing you can do because I think there are a lot of people who are very smart in science, but they hate working in labs and you should find that out as soon as possible. Um, and then there are lots of other things that you can do. You know what I mean? If, if you love science, but it was funny, I, I, I worked for somebody who was more of a theoretical physical chemist, and he told me that he absolutely could not do what's called wet chemistry, you know, so, so working, doing organic chemistry in the lab. He said that everything that he tried to make just wound up being black tar, you know, this black goop at the bottom of a flask he was he said he was hopeless and so i think it's important to find that out early on you know what you do and don't enjoy doing and what you're good at doing i mean he was fantastic at building instruments i mean that's so he became a physical chemist and was hugely successful so i think it's really good to just get in and try it and see if you like it and if you don't enjoy going into the lab every day find find something different it kind of reminds me of the this quote. I don't know where it comes from. Uh, maybe you do, but it's like this idea that the difference between someone who has, you know, maybe more of a mastery level of a topic versus someone who's just starting out is that the the mastery level person has failed so many different times, and you know, failed far four more times than the early person. And so I think that I think that like someone when they're first starting out, they they think that like failure is a bad thing when it should be a welcome part of, you know, the the process. Like if if you I don't think it's possible to go into an arena and like always be like not failing. That'd <laughs> be like some like really interesting odds. Like maybe you should like do a lotto as well. Has there been uh, a particular like failure or like science lab research project that you were working on that didn't work out that that still went on to help you develop something else in the future? 
Yeah. Um, I don't know if uh, I'll ever say that I embrace failure, but <laughs> I, you definitely have to accept it as part of a career in science. I mean, I'm, you, well, you have to accept failure as part of life. Um, I guess, you know, if you never fail at anything, that means that you've never taken any risks, which is probably pretty terrible. Um, I'm trying to think of good examples. Um, I mean, I think we certainly have a lot of projects that I won't say, uh, so we, we have a number of projects that didn't fail in the end, but they took a very, very long time to complete. So there was lots of little failures along the way. So, you know, one project that we've looked at for a long time is looking at this uh, medicinal plant, Madagascar periwinkle, which makes an anti a very structurally complicated anti-cancer agent called benblastin. And actually, when I first set out as, a, as an assistant professor, uh, this was in 2003, I said, I wanna figure out how the plant Madagascar periwinkle makes this compound. And um, we did it, but we did it with sort of the help and collaboration and input of many, many other research groups. Um, and it was only finished in 2018. So, you know, that, that was a success, but I mean, it didn't, it didn't feel like it was going to be a success for a fair amount of those 15 years. So, and then I think there are other examples where I, I guess what we sort of tried to learn from the failure is, um, you just try to dissect what went wrong um, and how to how to try to avoid that in the future. You know, maybe you have to, you say to yourself, okay, um, we need to think more carefully about what plant species we look at because uh, maybe it's um, looking at, uh, you, you know, a, a plant that's very difficult to grow that, that in the end just made the project too time consuming and, and too difficult to carry on. So I guess, I mean, when we have had real failures, I mean, I think we try to salvage what we can from the research project so that the person, the graduate student or the postdoc or the student who spent a long time on the project has something to show for it. And then, you know, we try to really just figure out what was it about it that failed and, and try not to do that again. There was a, I think it was Lee Iacocca who I think like every Saturday evening, he would, he would block out like four hours to reflect on his week. And I, I don't know how often you reflect, but it seems that that's a, like a very important aspect of, you know, uh, innovating on anything and ensuring that you're going in the right direction. I didn't know that. Um, it, it, sounds, it sounds like a great idea. I don't know that I'd have the, I think if I told myself that I needed to sit down for four hours every Saturday and reflect on my week, I think I'd, that would really stress me out. I'd, I'd be... I'd be, I'd be dreading that four hours on the Saturday, but I think it's absolutely true. You absolutely do have to reflect on, on what you're doing. And, and just in kind of thinking about it, I, I'd never really thought about this before, but I think the drive into and the drive home from work is that's when I do my reflecting. Well, it, it, you got to have it sometime of the day. The, yeah. um, well, what's his name? I, 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 the last time I referenced this guy, I called him Neil Patrick and that's not his name. Mm -hmm. His name is uh, Neil Gaiman. There you go. And uh, he said the, the best, because he writes all the time. I don't know if you're a fan of Neil Gaiman's work, but um, he, he writes a lot. And he said the best way to write is to like sit at a desk, 
give yourself give yourself a sheet of paper and like you can like space off and like do whatever but you can't do anything else like you can't take out a phone or anything like that and, and he said like eventually you'll get tired of doing everything besides writing and you'll end up writing <laughs> so like it's like uh in your driveway it's kind of like you have like your mind has nowhere to go but like in and uh like like maybe that'll make like the guy's four hour when he had that time like he just like he wouldn't do anything else besides like write stuff down and stuff so i think that um yeah i think people sometimes find it hard to let themselves get bored because they have like cell phones or like screens everywhere um and they they bring them from room to room absolutely and it's funny because writing is such a big part of being a scientist i don't think i really realized that when i was an undergraduate but i mean everything that you do in the lab eventually much of what you do in the lab eventually has to get written up in some form or another. And, you know, sitting down and writing a, a manuscript or a paper, for example, I mean, yeah, it's, it's tough. You have to sit there with a blank sheet of paper and switch off your phone and switch off your email and, and, you know, turn off the Wi-Fi so you don't surf the web and yeah, it's hard. Uh, other than those things, have you found any other tricks? I, I found um, I, if I'm writing something, I say to myself that my goal is to write a really crappy first draft. And then like it takes the stress off of me. And it's not, it never turns out that bad, but like that's like one strategy I use. Do you have any other strategies other than like turning everything off? Uh, yeah, I think that actually getting something on paper is, is the best advice. And that's really good advice. Um, I mean, because it's always easier to edit than to actually just write something from scratch. So just getting, writing down anything, even if it's terrible, even if, even if it's bullet points, um, if, 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 you, if it's easier for you to write an outline than, than an actual you know, uh, prose draft, um, do that. Just get something on paper. Makes sense. The, um, well, uh, going back to the, the research that you mentioned a minute ago, I, I was reading through the AMA before this call, uh, that's how I found Sarah. She did a really uh, amazing AMA on Reddit. That was a lot of fun. And um, you got you got a lot of people asking about marijuana on there. Oh my makes goodness! Sense. Yeah. <laughs> people are so interested about this. Um, I don't know. I've never li lived in a legalized state, or else maybe I'd be exposed to it more. And yeah. uh, I don't know. Through my entire life, someone has only tried to offer me drugs one time. I don't know what it is about me that makes people feel like I don't want to do drugs, but it's always worked <laughs> out for me. But uh, okay, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just look like someone who doesn't do drugs. But um, but anyways, so I, I was reading that that had like a really crazy, like you said, it took, you know, a, you know, 10, 15 years, but that like to find it, it had a weird history. Like it, it had like Chinese uh, medicine and a number of like branching trees to find it. Mm -hmm. it. Maybe I'm like thinking of like a different question you asked, but like, could you expand on like how you guys sifted down to find that one chemical and how it like you took like many different like multidisciplinary approach to find it so that people can see like it's not just chemistry not just this like they can see like there's a whole tapestry of of options and opportunities for people who get involved in this type of thing yeah so i think there's a lot of different levels to look at and the first level that you mentioned is actually deciding on what compound to look at and actually identifying a compound that has some kind of interesting medical or pharmacological activity and in my opinion that's actually the hardest it's i think it's it, that's the hardest part is to actually find a molecule that that can act as a drug and um i think what i was saying in that um reddit was that a lot of these molecules that we use in medicine now they actually have some kind of folk medicine history mm. 
Um, so this, for example, this molecule vimblastin, um, this was used in Jamaica um, as, a, as a tea uh, to cure diabetes. And in the 1950s, um, some Canadian physicians investigated this a little bit further and they did actual kind of clinical trials to try to test the anti-diabetic properties of the extract of this plant. And they could not find any evidence of anti-diabetic activity. But what they did find just serendipitously was that these plant extracts selectively killed white blood cells. So that's kind of how they made the leap into thinking that the chemicals in this plant extract could serve as an anti-cancer agent for, for certain blood cancers. And, and they, they kind of took it from there. Um, so lot, lots of, lots of, especially plant-based drugs, um, do have some kind of folk medicine history. Um, artemisinin, which is an anti-malarial compound, uh, this is another beautiful example of, of something that was, that was known in, in Chinese medicine as something that had anti-malarial activity um, and, and then was, was actually commercialized on a much larger scale later. Um, so I think that's the first part of your question is how to identify these molecules. And um, the answer is it's really hard. And kind <laughs> of human, human history and, uh, you know, looking at, at, uh, at, at the, the uses of these plants in various cultures actually has a lot of really useful information. And then I guess the second part of your question is um, just sort of understanding a little bit better how the plant actually makes these molecules. And that's, that's really what my lab does. Um, we, we, we tend to focus on molecules that are known to have some kind of medicinal activity, and then we try to in investigate them, um, investigate it further. And it's been, it's actually, it's been a really exciting time to do this research because when I first started, as I said, in, in 2003, the tools that we had were, I mean, now we look back at those tools and they just seem so primitive. So we've just had this amazing revolution in um, sequencing technology and, and analytical tools that are available that have really allowed us to, to look at plants in a much, much, much bigger way. Um, so when I was um, just starting out, it was it was pretty much unthinkable, you know, that you'd be able to get the genome sequence of a of a medicinal plant that you've been working with in the lab. Um, and now it's it's a very straightforward thing. For example, so you can use all of these new tools and look into the genetic information of the plant, which is now you know very cheap to obtain, um, and you can use lots of really interesting and cool bioinformatic tricks to try to pull out um, the genes that encode the proteins or the enzymes that actually do the chemistry that, that put this molecule together. Um, th this kind of leads to a question that I've always had, and this is maybe a, the, when, when you look at the DNA, like it, you know, it has the, the like, billion, like millions and millions and millions of sequences. How do we know which ones do what if you're looking at something for the first time? Like, how do you differentiate down using like um, the different technology to know that this string will do this, and then then you can propagate that in bacteria and and or fungi or, or anything else? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. It's really hard, actually. <laughs> so, um, so I'll I'll kind of give you a, a general answer because I'm sure there are people with lots of different backgrounds and interests listening to this. I think this field really kind of first took off looking at antibiotic biosynthesis. Um, in microbes. And microbes 
it's actually, it's a really wonderful system because microbes, specifically bacteria, have relatively small genomes. And the, the genes that encode a pathway for an, for an antibiotic molecule, for example, they're located together on the genome. So they form what's called an operon. So you can actually, they call it genome mining. You just scan the genome and you look for these clusters of genes that might encode the biosynthetic pathway um, for, say, an antibiotic. There are tricks that we can do where you can, you could basically, you can do what's called annotating the genome. So we now have functionally, we've characterized and studied enough genes in the world from enough organisms so that even if we're looking at a brand new organism, a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time, we can make a guess as to what that gene might be doing, at least, at least in a general way. I mean, we might not know the exact function of it, but, but we can make a reasonable guess as, as to different possibilities as to what it might be doing. And so that, with the fact that um, these pathways are actually physically clustered together on the genome, enables you to, 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 to do what's this, this genome mining and to be able to pick up clusters that have genes that are annotated as things that, you know, you might guess might be, re might be reasonably expected to be involved in antibiotic biosynthesis. And plants, which we primarily focus on, uh, are harder. And that's kind of why we got into plants, um, because there was less work done on them, because the, the, they, were, they were harder. And in plants, very often the genes of a pathway that synthesize a molecule like binblastin or, 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 or something else, they are not clustered together on the genome. They, they, you know, one gene for binblastin biosynthesis might be on chromosome one, and another gene for binblastin biosynthesis might be on chromosome five. And plants also have huge genomes. So some plant genomes are actually bigger than human genomes. So all plant, plant there, there's, there's a lot of genetic sequence to look through in plants. So, so this is actually a very, very difficult question. And so the, a trick that works relatively well is um, it's a trick called co-expression analysis. So what you do is instead of looking at the DNA sequence, you look, you look at messenger RNA. And messenger RNA is uh, actually kind of a diagnostic for telling you what genes are actually being expressed. So there are the genes that are mRNA tells you the genes that are actually being switched on. So you sequence the messenger RNA in different tissues of the plant, like the leaf or the flower or the root. And you can actually do that in a quantitative way. So you can say, okay, we have a little bit of gene A in leaf and a lot of gene A in root and a lot of gene B in leaf and a, only a little bit of gene B in root. And if you know that the compound, the molecule that you're interested in is, for example, made in the leaf, you can only look at genes that are highly expressed in leaf, for example. And there are much more sophisticated ways to do that, but that's, that's kind of the general idea. Other than just a genome size, are there particular benefits, strengths, or weaknesses between bacteria, fungi, and plants that made you pick plants as the primary thing that you wanted to focus on? Uh, plants versus bacteria versus fungi. 
they all make incredibly interesting molecules and they they kind of they make orthogonal molecules so bacteria make molecules that you don't see in fungi and plants and 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 Fungi make molecules that you don't see in bacteria and plants, etc. So it's it's absolutely worth looking at all of them. We frankly chose to look at plants because there was an opening uh, at the time when we started um, our our research laboratory in 2003. There were just relatively few people working in plants, um, and that. Um, that that is not really the case anymore, um, as as these genetic tools have really improved um, over the years. Um, there are m many many more people working in plant biochemistry now, which is which, which is really kind of exciting. Um, so that's kind of the you know the the technical reason why we we originally went into plants. I think there are lots of interesting different biological questions that you can look at with each system, you know, beyond the fact that you want to look at all of them. If, if you want to, if you want to have access to the greatest number of medicines, obviously you, you, you want to look at, at all three kingdoms. But there are other interesting biological reasons why you'd want to look at plants and fungi and bacteria. Um, I mean, plants are really interesting because they're complicated organisms. You know, they have different tissue types. So one really interesting thing that we can look at in, in plants is we can try to understand how plants compartmentalize the synthesis of these molecules. So lots of times the molecules are made, you know, so the first part of the synthesis of the molecule happens in one cell type, and then it gets transported to another cell type where the, you know, the next four steps might take place, and then it gets transported back to the first cell type where the, the synthesis of the molecule is completed. So that's a really interesting question. You're trying to understand why plants do that and, and, and how they move these molecules sort of all over the plant, you know, to, 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 to try to understand that, that whole um, issue of, of localization, why and how the plants put these molecules in, in different locations. Is there any opportunity in animals or are, are, there, are there reasons why we don't do any experiments with animals? You mean in terms of looking for new molecules? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose, first of all, it's, it's, uh, it's more difficult just in terms of, you know, the, 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 the ethics and, you know, you, mm. you, you really, you know, working with animals is something that needs to be very, very carefully considered. That being said, I mean, there are some, and also the fact is, you know, mammals, for example, just don't really make that many natural products. They don't make okay. that many molecules. Um, that being said, I mean, there's been a fair amount of research done on insects, um, which you know, some people might consider animals, um, that make very interesting molecules. Um, so spiders make some very interesting toxins. So the venoms that you see in certain animal species, um, those have been, there have been some very, very nice studies done on those molecules. And, and I, I would classify those, those under um, uh, animal studies. I also just want to say this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's a very interesting study that um, maybe isn't as widely known as it should be. Um, there's actually some very interesting evidence that um, mammals, including humans, actually synthesize morphine in their in their brains. Hmm. And there's been some very nice work done, not with whole animals, but with neuronal cell cultures. Um, and being able to look at these neuronal cell cultures and show that you can actually do some of the chemical reactions that are involved in morphine biosynthesis in, in this cell culture. So maybe we have a lot more to learn.
about um, natural products in mammals. Hmm. That's interesting. I didn't know. Uh, I haven't heard of that research before. Do, do, do you know uh, one of the authors or what it was called by chance? I'll, I'll link yeah. it in the show notes. Yeah. So the, um, the or the, the senior author was um, a very famous alkaloid chemist named Meinhard Zenk. Z-E-N-K. And it was, um, it was a, a one or two PNAS papers, um, maybe in about five years ago. I'll add it to the show notes for everyone who's uh, interested in learning more about that. The, so I was thinking of analogies, like what's the best way to kind of capture what your work like looks like. And so this entire time when you were talking about it and when I was researching you, I kept thinking of this movie called The Fountain. I don't know if you ever, it has Hugh Jackman in it. It's a uh, Basically, this guy tries saving his wife from cancer, and he uses like plants found from in the Amazon to like test to find like the kind of like what your work what, what your work did that you referenced earlier. Uh, yeah. On the, yeah. It is, but it's a it's a pretty decent movie. I don't know how accurate it is, but are there? I, I are there, haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. I've been told I need to watch it. It it's pretty intense. Everyone I get to watch it kind of kind of like cries. <laughs> it's like a really intense movie. My girlfriend like was mad at me for a bit because she was like, well, this is a really sad movie. Well, why'd you do this? She's like, oh, it's a really good movie too. Uh, but anyways, so that's the movie I think of. Are there good movies or documentaries that really capture what your work is like? I think science is very badly portrayed in movies. And uh, I'm trying to think of television shows that portray science sort of accurately. What about inaccurate? If you can't think of one that's accurate, maybe it's like one that's so horribly oh, wrong. I know I've seen inaccurate movies before. <laughs> um, oh God, you, know, you put me on the spot. I'm trying to remember some movies where I got very aggravated with watching them. Actually, you know, let, let me, I can think of a good example. So I remember watching the X-Files mm-hmm. um, and um, they did a very good job with the science um, in, in the X-Files. So uh, Scully would uh, occasionally go into the lab and, and do some things. And she always did it very accurately. And what I learned was that the X-Files actually hired a consultant. I think it was a professor from the University of Massachusetts um, who was a biochemist. And she went in and she explained to them, you know, exactly how the lab should be set up and what the equipment would be doing. And I remember there was one episode where they showed Scully doing what's called Western blot, which is a way to detect proteins. And I was just glued to this television screen. I was, oh my goodness, that's right. I, rec- <laughs> I recognize that brand of gel box, you know? So they, 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 that, that's an example where they got it right. That's awesome. I love when, uh, when movies or TV shows I, they take the, the time to actually make it accurate, kind of like Interstellar or anything like that. Because it just adds like a, a level of realism that yes. uh, like most people maybe wouldn't notice but you would. And then maybe someone who's watching the X-Files sees that scene. It's like, oh, that looks kind of neat. I, yeah. I want to learn more about that. And then it starts something versus like, yeah. you know, Star Trek, no, uh, a Stargate, either Star Trek or Stargate uh, SG-1. Like they would just, they would just like make stuff up. Like this is yeah. like, like significant hand waving and then onto the next scene. It's like, I guess that's <laughs> creative in its own way. Um, yeah. I would definitely recommend the fountain to you. The, it, it, it sounds like the research you did pro- oh, less tragic, I think but that yeah, movie's really yeah. good. So what, what, um, what is like, uh, if you were to look at the knowledge bases you use in a typical week to, to do what you are doing, what would they be? Um, so that if someone wanted to do what you were doing, they could start thinking, okay, I need to learn, you know, biophysics. I don't think biophysics is one of them, but they can kind of see like, what are the building blocks to build up to be doing what you're doing? 
Uh, okay, so I think you do need to know some chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, that being said, um, many of the people in my group did not major in chemistry as undergraduates, but they, they, did, they did learn some chemistry along the way. I think you have to know some molecular biology because a lot of what we do is, is cloning out these genes and, and um, trying to um, uh, what we call functionally characterize them, basically figure out what they do. And that involves a lot of different molecular biology techniques to do that. Um, we do a lot of analytical chemistry. So um, we have to, you know, if you want to figure out what a plant is making, or, you know, if, if one of the plant enzymes is actually doing the chemistry to make this molecule, you've got to have a way to, you know, essentially visualize the molecule. And there's a lot of analytical chemistry like mass spectrometry and, and NMR um, that, that we use to do that. And then I would say the other really big tool that, that we use that I've actually never been trained in, I've kind of had to learn it along the way. And I, I still feel like I could, I, could, uh, I could do a lot, I could learn a lot more. I should learn a lot more is bioinformatics because it's pretty easy to outsource the sequencing of plants, you know, you can get somebody else to do the sequencing for you pretty cheaply and just and just deliver you back a whole bunch of sequence data. But then you've got to sort of sit down and, and you know, as, as you mentioned in that question, um, figure out how to sift through all that sequence information and find the genes that you're interested in. And there's a lot of different bioinformatics techniques that we have to be able to use in order to do that. So I think if you like computational biology, you would be in a very, very good position to, to look at these types of research questions. That makes sense. Uh, we, uh, on the show, we had uh, two bioinformatics people in the UK. I think you're moving from the UK to Germany, I think. Um, so maybe they, maybe they helped you at one point in time. Or um, I don't know. If they're listening, you, you, they should reach out and help. Um, okay. <laughs> but, but I'm curious, and, and this kind of leads into the, uh, another sequence of questions I, I wanted to ask about, but if you were to do the, the, the 10 to 15 year research project again today with today's technology, how long do you think it would take like with all the new innovations and stuff? Like I ask myself that question a lot. Um, I think this is one of these reflective questions, you know, going back and sort of looking at all the mistakes that you've made and trying to figure out, um, you know, what you did wrong. I mean, I think it would certainly, I mean, it always depends on how big your team is and how much money you've got to spend. That all plays a factor. I mean, I certainly think that if we had done it properly, we, we certainly could have done it in less than five years. My hope is, is that we're going to, we, we meaning the field, not just us, um, we will accelerate the process even more. I mean, I, I think there are ways to really be able to narrow down the search for gene candidates and to be able to, to characterize them a lot more quickly. I mean, I, I think it's really important to be able to say, okay, a plant makes this very complicated molecule that takes probably between 20 and 30 different genes to make. You know, we should be able to identify that whole pathway, have it all, all the genes cloned out and identified and characterized in less than a year. That, that would be my goal for the next five years to, to kind of be at that for the field to be at that level so so with uh, today's technology it would take about five years to do or was it was it in reflection you think you could do it in five years since you've learned a lot 
I think with, I certainly think with today's technology, you could do it in less than five years. Start, starting from where we were in 2003, I think if, if, if we were at that point today, we, we could absolutely get it done in a few years, yes. That's a big improvement. It's a, I think there's been a revolution you know, in, in the technology that's available that's enabled that. Are there, are there technologies or, or opportunities that you're seeing come up that you're really excited about? Yeah, I think we can get um, sequence at much greater resolution now. So for example, we can now think about sequencing single cells, which means that you can get, if you're interested in this co-expression analysis, you can, you can refine that even further. So you can, you can sort of narrow down the synthesis to a certain cell type and then be able to look at that. And that, that gives you much greater resolution uh, than, for example, just looking at a, you know, a leaf, a whole leaf. So I think that's, that's one area, not just in plant biochemistry, but uh, in, in, in all sorts of areas is, is, is having a really, really important role. I think also what's helping is this um, field that uh, people sometimes call synthetic biology. So this idea where you can just kind of take different parts from different organisms and mix and match them together in a heterologous host. And that's a, that's a very big oversimplification. But I definitely think that we now have tools where we can just much, much more rapidly assemble genes, throw them into a, a very easy to work with host organism like E. coli or yeast, and then be able to rapidly see what those genes do. And I think this is also evidenced um, in the fact that, um, I mean, it used to be even five years ago, getting a gene synthesized was extremely expensive. You know, so just calling up a company and saying, okay, um, I, want, I, want to, I want to work with this gene. Here's the sequence. Can you make it for me? It, it cost a lot of money. And now it's actually cheaper to, or it's probably as cheap or cheaper to just call up a company and say, synthesize these 100 genes for me rather than to actually go into the plant and try to clone them out using or, or fish them out using traditional uh, molecular biology techniques. So that, that's, a, that's another big thing that I think is really helping move things along. Makes sense. I've been, um, a lot of people who've been on the show have been recommending for people to get involved in iGEM competitions. If they're at like, depend, no matter what level you're at, you can go in there and kind of experiment and make something using synthetic biology or any of these other tools and kind of see how they stack up and have fun uh, versus just like building something in, in a vacuum or in your closet and not sharing it with people. I think, I think it's good to get like that peer review and other people to critique your work. Yeah, I agree. And I think the synthetic biology community, I mean, that's one of the great things about it is that they've really promoted this type of, you know, community type of um, work. So you're not just, uh, uh, you know, a, a college student, you know, working alone, you know, trying to trying to do something in a vacuum, I mean, but you actually you're interacting with a whole group of people and what you do um, essentially gets, you know, published on a on a on a wiki page. And lots of times, I mean, the things that you actually make get deposited into a repository so that other people can use them, which I think is re really a great idea. Are there, is iGEM the competition that you'd recommend for people who want to get into plant natural products uh, and experiment and play with them as well? Or is there a, another competition or conference that would be like better suited? For uh, so I think, I mean, iGEM is really for synthetic biology. 
So plant natural products could be part of that, but it's, it's, you know, that would just be one small focus of synthetic biology. But I mean, I think iGEM is, it's the most, um, it's definitely the best own type of scientific uh, competition like that. I, I certainly don't know of anything comparable to it embedded in the, in the field of natural products. Mm-hmm. So I think if that idea of, you know, working as part of a team and, and doing a project collectively and then competing um, uh, in, in that type of science competition really appeals, I would definitely um, look into iGEM. And synthetic biology is such a broad field and it can be applied to so many different so many different problems you're 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 going you're going to find a project that's going to be of interest to you makes sense the so the last couple questions i have are kind of my standard questions i ask people because they um i don't know they're they're fun ones but are there particularly good books or resources that you think people would after listening in to what type of work you do would be interested in reading or that you'd recommend them check out so I think if you're interested in natural products, especially how they're made, and that's, that's, that's what we're really interested in. There's a really great book called Medicinal Natural Products by uh, Dewick, D-E-W-I-C-K. And I, I, think it's, I think it's a very, very good introduction. And, uh, and it's in paperback, so I don't even think it's that expensive. Is there a problem that you're having that you need help with? The... Like it can be anything that is like unsolved or that is a pain point in your life right now that maybe someone listening could help you out with. Find you uh, movies like The Fountain, for instance. Uh, great movie recommendations are always welcome. <laughs> um, I think if you know of uh, an interesting medicinal plant, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always, I think selection of problems is, is one of the most important things in science. So if somebody knows of an interesting natural product or, or a really interesting medicinal plant, I, I always love to hear about that. Oh, sweet. The, I, when I was in college, there was a, a course that was going to be taught on native Americans, uh, on the subject of native Americans. And there was, there was too few people that would, that signed up for, it, so they canceled it. And it's really important. I'm in America. Um, and for people who aren't in America, like the, there's a lot of Native American wisdom that is being lost because only like a couple of people who know it anymore. But there's some there's some organizations that are going out and like recording them, you know, speaking their language and telling their stories. And I, I would imagine they, they will include the medicine in that. So if anyone anyone knows anything about that, um, you should reach out in, in particular because I think that stuff's fascinating. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's just like, I mean, there it's... Especially in America, I don't know. We're, we're, we really dropped the ball on those things, but there's like a whole continent of history. And I was recently reading that, like most people think, like I, I know for the longest time, I thought that the Native Americans came over like 10,000 years ago from like the, the Australia-Russia ice bridge. Well, apparently mm-hmm. that there's some evidence to suggest that they, there was a, a previous wave like 100,000 years ago that they came over as well. So that's kind of like the, the idea that people were here like 10 times as long it's kind of an intense idea, but yeah. So anyone who's uh, de- definitely check, and I'll, I'll I'll leave links in the show notes to. Are, wait, are you on Twitter or social media? I don't I don't think I could find your uh, any handles for you. We have we have a Twitter account. Um, okay. Here, hold on. I have to I have to look up what it is. It's on my <laughs> phone. Uh, yeah, I am. Because that could be a good way to contact you. Versus like I don't know, send an email. People, Twitter's like a pretty good way, unless you don't use Twitter all that much. If you need to get a hold of me fast, you should probably, you should send me an email. Okay. Um, 
but uh, here I can just, I think it's O'Connor Lab. Yeah, it's at capital O, capital C, O-N-N-O-R underscore L-A-B. Sweet. Yeah, it's, it's good that you specify because when I first looked up Sarah O'Connor, I got a different Sarah O'Connor from like the Terminator movies. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, I don't know if you get any references like that a lot. I'm sure some people oh, made jokes. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> That's another movie. You know, I don't know that the time travel in that movie. I, I don't know if it's, you know, scientifically accurate, but. Probably it's not. Movie, <laughs> I like the theory. I don't know if you're a, do you make theory? Uh, are you the type of person that when you see a movie, like you make theories to make, make the world make sense? Or do you just kind of like accept it? Like, Oh, that was entertainment. Move on. Uh, it depends on the movie, but I, I have, I have for some movies. Well, uh, okay. I'll, I'll give you mine for transform, uh, not transformers, uh, Terminator. But if you have like a, a good one for you, that I'd be interested to hear it. But the, um, the, I think there's like a really good theory that, the machines are sending people behind like and back in time because they keep wiping them out. They, they wiped out humanity the first time and they were like, well, we have nothing to do anymore. And so they, they, they're the reason the resistance is allowed to persist is that they, like, they're like basically behind it all. And like, it's just like a, like a lab. They're just like keeping. Man, that's like almost like a matrix type uh, analysis of the Terminator. <laughs> yeah. But uh, do you, do you have any um, favorite movie theories? Do you want mind sharing? Oh my goodness. I don't know. No, I can't think of any. <laughs> it's okay. All right, yeah. then. Um, what is a question that you have that you do not have the answer to? Well, I mean, I could, I have lots of very specific questions that I don't have the answer to. Um, yeah. If, if there's one that's like, that particularly bugs you, maybe the per there's a person out there who will be listening who will have the answer. Okay. No one has the answer to my questions. The like uh, the one the, I were I wonder about like what was here before the Big Bang was here, uh, happened, or like what would happen if you were to stop the Big Bang from happening. Um, yeah. See, no. I mean, the question that is stuck in my mind is the okay. question because I'm talking to my postdocs, you know, a couple hours ago, and it's okay. What is the sequence of the epoxidase that makes uh, this uh, Tabernay Montana natural product? Um, I don't. I don't think that's a question that um, you had in mind. Yeah. I, I don't even understand it. I don't, yeah. I don't, it's I don't a know. very, very specific and technical question. No, I'm yeah. trying to think of like a good general question. Um, you know what? I, the, a, a question, a general question that I struggle with is how to identify new molecules for, as drugs. That's, that's a really tough question. I mean, what are good ways to screen for new, new molecules that would make new drugs? How, how, how do you find, what's the best way to find new drugs? I feel like there's like a, a good opportunity for a startup to come in and like gather all the data from researchers finding like medicinal stuff in like the rainforest or uh, in China and then cross-referencing those plants with like current research or something. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. People innovate anything. Like they're, they're crazy. But okay. So the last question I have for you is, is there a is there a quote or saying or you could just like say something nice? But is there like a quote that you like that you would uh, wouldn't mind sharing and leave us in a in a positive way? Which does not kill you, makes you stronger. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> and that was Sarah O'Connor. Like I said in the beginning, not the Terminator or the person who destroys Terminators, but the the plant chemist from 
the UK that is moving to Germany. So in this episode, we got into plant biochemistry, blomblastin, antibiotic biosynthesis, folk medicine, books recommendations, movie recommendations, things that she would love help on, how, how uh, you can sift through massive amounts of DNA sequence data to find actual parts that produce the chemicals and molecules that they're looking for, plant extracts, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at LowellWasHere, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.